Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Our guest today is Jennifer Randolph, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Executive for ThinkShift. She's a talent business partner, a curator of culture, and a developer of talent for the future. Jennifer, thank you for joining us on Reimagining Black Relations. Francesca, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to speak to you today, and I look forward to our discussion for sure. Definitely. Same here. So Jennifer, do you mind introducing yourself formally? I know I just went over it very quickly, but feel free to share anything you want the listeners to know about you personally, professionally. Feel free to share that. Well, thank you, Francesca. I appreciate that. I joined ThinkShift. We're an organization that works with fabulous leaders. The goal is to create a fabulous world and a fabulous workspace. And I uh, was on the client side for a number of years working with them. And with all the changes that have gone on in our country, I was looking for something more expansive in my career. And I found my tribe, so to speak, in terms of who I enjoy working with and how we want to work inside an organization. And I think we are really focused on trying to an atmosphere where people can be their most authentic self. And I've always been very motivated by that, even when I manage talent for several agencies within the publicist group uh, infrastructure. Uh, my goal was always to have uh, HR be a place where people could course correct. And where I understood we represent the company, I really wanted people to feel as though they were someplace that they could thrive and grow. We spend so much time at work and how that environment supports you as an individual was always very important to me. Um, prior to being with Publicist Group, I worked on the diversity side in um, marketing and advertising. I worked for Saatchi and Saatchi for a number of years. And then I also worked for Court TV many years ago. It's called True TV now, but uh, back then... Um, there was a focus on trial coverage. I was involved in that. And that's really where I began my journey in the diversity space, trying to make sure that we had equal representation in front of as well as behind the camera, and that we created an atmosphere where people felt they could grow and thrive in their careers. So I have maintained that missionary work and continue to work in that space. And look at us now. Uh, we are all talking about um, diversity equity and inclusion at some level uh, with urgency in some situations and as a mission moving forward for this country. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out, uh, particularly going into an election year, right? Most definitely, more so that, right? It's actually amazing. You're one of the very few that has a DEI as a background. Many DEI executives today, they just got dumped into it because they happen to be maybe the only black there or the only minority that 
should know about it, should be the expert, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting to me to see how people can come into the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion space. Uh, at the time where I first got involved, it was a little through osmosis, uh, having worked in several different areas of a business and, and being a hand raiser. I wanted to be a part of that discussion in terms of how diversity was being managed uh, at my network at the time. Uh, I'm amazed when I meet people who now uh, major in diversity and inclusion and they come out and um, a lot of people are well credentialed, but I think it's really those people who've been in the trenches and have had to build alliances and relationships uh, which is very much a part of the diversity conversation, is where you grow your chops. And uh, it's not easy work. I think you really have to want to work in that space and work towards creating opportunities for people in order to go the long, the long haul. Jennifer, I kept looking at you. You look black to me. I don't know whether you're mixed. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, where you grew up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I am an African-American woman. I was born actually in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, my family was very entrenched there. My grandfather was the second black man to graduate from Bowdoin College. Uh, my grandmother was the very first uh, black woman to graduate from the School of Fine Arts at the University of Pennsylvania. So I have a legacy of education in my family and uh, you want to talk about the bar being raised. You, um, my, my mother is an attorney. My father was involved in business. Uh, my stepfather was also very well credentialed. He worked in government. He was Charlie Rangel's chief of staff many years ago. He worked for Governor Kerry in New York. Uh, he was very involved in D.C. politics. And I reside in Washington, D.C., recently moved back from New York City. Uh, so I've had a varied journey in terms of uh, growing up in the U.S. and um, quite a point of view in terms of what I've been exposed to in this country and had had the opportunity to travel well as well. So it's interesting that you say that. But uh, Yeah, yeah, because I kept thinking, okay, people can't see you, they can't hear you, but can they really tell who you are? And I don't know. That's why I thought, you know what, let's just get everyone to be on the same page. And I could, I could be assuming too, because I've seen people, I'm staring at them, they look black, they told me they're white. And I saw somebody that looks white and they said they're black because it's just the pigment of the skin. Okay, let's just move on to what is your first exposure to the issue of racism? Well, you know, it's so interesting to have had that little conversation around looking black. And um, in this country, we are very socialized around racial politics and trying to define who are you. And um, having come from a history where you have um, mixed race people, uh, you can go back uh, through s slavery. Uh, I know black people have had their own internal struggles along color lines. Um, how do we define ourselves is a very interesting perspective. I know many white people who have never had to look at that definition through the lens of race. So people of color have had some interesting challenges in that regard. And I remember um, growing up in Washington, D.C., 
um, it was a different strata because they're very strong black middle-class infrastructure. It's also difficult, uh, difficulty there. It's difficult in terms of our political structure because we don't have representation, voting representation in Congress. Uh, we're not structured like other states and cities. And, and so there is an inherent uh, frustration, I think, because you had such a high number of, of black and brown people in the city. Um, I was very naive about uh, color growing up, uh, going to private schools, and um, really feeling as though I had equal footing with my white counterparts in, in my school. And it's interesting because I've recently had this discussion with several of my former high school classmates because they've been dealing with some racial issues with students uh, within the last 10 years or so. And that was not my experience. I really thought the world functioned in a non-color way. And that was my naivete as a child. And it wasn't really until I went to college and I uh, met white people who had never uh, had to deal with black people, uh, either from where they were raised and coming from through their prior education before getting to Colgate, where I was, Colgate University. Uh, so that encounter was really the first time where people were defining me through the lens of color in a way that I could feel it. So it was a really interesting dynamic very early on. But I, I think the first time I experienced racism that impacted me from a career perspective was when I first uh, got into the workplace. I was in a retail training program and I had been trained by a black woman who was hard. Uh, she taught me all the nuts and bolts of things. And when we got to the end of my tenure in the program, I didn't get promoted. And the store manager's feedback was he didn't think I was ready. I wasn't prepared. There were things he was unsure about in order to move me forward within the program. And everybody else of a class of about um, 15, 16 people moved on. And I looked at the dynamics and my boss and I both knew what was going on. She was a black woman and I was a black woman. And he thought because we had camaraderie and a rapport with one another that she gave me a pass and I was devastated because I was really raised at the time that if you did good work and you delivered on what was tasked of you that you would succeed and and I was um, very shy about uh tooting my own horn and saying, look at what I did, look at what I'm doing. And other people were a little bit better about that. And so when he walked the floor and he talked to some of the people in the program, they were a lot more aggressive about that level of visibility. And I just thought my work, uh, my sail through on the floor and the fact that uh, I had very high results in my area I spoke for myself and clearly they did not. And interesting enough, he moved me to um, another department and I was under the leadership of a white male who became an ally. And that was really my first experience having a white ally in the workplace. And I would say in the first 30 days of working together and developing a rapport, he knew I was ready. 
And the education he gave me about what I needed to do to raise my visibility and to show my skills to this manager so that I could get to the next level was an education I have never forgotten. And he got me out of that program in less than six months. And I became a department manager at a suburban mall, hated every bit of it, but <laughs> I was able to go on and do much better things. But I've never forgotten uh, that lesson and um, how that impacted me. So tell us about that lesson, because I think somebody may be listening and uh, they are struggling with what you just described. They've done everything. They put in double duty to prove themselves and they feel that their output should speak for themselves, right? They don't need to tout their horns. They, you can see my numbers, my sales, my revenue, my all this should speak for itself. But it clearly wasn't. I mean, you were among you know, 15, 16 people, all of them got promoted. You did not. Or, you know, you know, what's interesting though, Francesca, that you say that I think had I had a British accent or a French accent, it might've made a difference because I went into retail as a bit of a misnomer. I really wanted to be in fashion. And at the time there weren't a lot of black girls who uh, could succeed in fashion beyond a certain level. And going into retail is not going into fashion. They're very different animals. And in terms of one, you are selling items that someone has already selected. You are not going to fashion shows. You are not part of fashion week. You are not all those glamorous things that you see. And it was interesting even uh, interacting with customers who came into the store. And it was a very high-end store here in Washington. It no longer is in business. But you had um, uh, congressional wives and uh, very well-heeled people who came into the store. And I was working with a colleague who was very elegant at the time. She was Iranian. Uh, she had lived in Europe. She spoke four different languages. Um, we were both in the women's fashion accessories area. And I enjoyed uh, interacting with her. I loved her fashion sense. And she could charm anyone because she brought them in with a European sensibility that was very aspirational for the average American woman. And it's interesting because as I uh, continued to pursue a career in retail for a period of time, and I got more fashion oriented, I had a really hard time working with American women. And I found that um, they did not care about my point of view in, in terms of fashion, but I could go to my gay male colleague Ask him to go speak to my client, tell him to tell her exactly what I just said, and she heard it for the very first time. And Francesca, it was incredibly frustrating trying to find those things that would amplify my voice. And I, I go back to that first experience because um, you cannot let those incidents defeat you. You must find a personal strategy for getting through it. And you learn some hard lessons. It's not as if you go through unscathed. It 
it's very painful. It's frustrating. Um, a lot of Black people have called it a Black tax that um, um, people of color have to deal with in the workplace where you know you have to work twice as hard uh, just to be half as good as some of your colleagues and you know it. You can come through the door very well credentialed, but when you walk outside that door, they only see your color. Uh, which is incredibly frustrating. Uh, you find allies in interesting places. Not everybody who looks like you is going to be an ally, uh, is going to be an advocate. Some people are comfortable being the only ones and they will not advocate for your uh, on your behalf. And some people who don't look like you can be your best champion. It is up to you to keep your eyes and ears open, to listen, to ask for help help to lean in in difficult situations you're going to find white people who've never had to deal with people of color and you're going to have to approach them first or you'll find a few people who will reach out and check in and ask how are you doing how can i help and you have to be open to that and don't deny people because they don't look like you. And those are the lessons I learned because that department manager who helped me get promoted, uh, I will never forget. And the things that he taught me about how I need to amplify my behavior, how I need to promote myself, uh, are things that have stuck with me throughout my career. Quite uh mouthful what you've just shared with us. I just want to pick one of the last things you said, how to amplify your voice and present yourself in a way that they will see past the color, right? Because obviously that color prevents them from hearing you. You give the example of a colleague of yours that's not black, but you told him, just go and see exactly the same thing. And they heard they reacted to it. But when you said it, they just couldn't get past it. What are some of those specific things that some of our listeners could do to amplify their voice or to, to make themselves relevant or be heard or be seen beyond the color? I think um, it's interesting. With the Black Lives Matters movement, we're seeing a lot of people engaged in wanting to be part of the solution, but they have no idea how to do that. They don't often know what are the situations that are happening to people of color where I can lean in. I can certainly appreciate where someone does not want to offend or speak for you, uh, but simply wants to support. And what does that sound like? I think in the workplace, um, when you see or hear something that does not feel right to you, responding to that, because oftentimes we pick our battles. We decide where we're going to lean in. Uh, oftentimes, depending on where we are on the pecking order, you don't want to make waves. And maybe because I'm at a certain age and a certain stage of my career, my career. I don't care anymore. But um, because I'm like, okay, it is what it is. And I've seen a lot. So I'm just going to go with it. But I think um, oftentimes it could be a situation, for example, let's say you have a colleague who was supposed to get promoted. And let's say the promotion didn't happen for them, but a colleague got the promotion who was a person of color. So the colleague comes to you and, and bitches and moans about it. Oh, you know, they probably got this job because they needed to check a box off or something to that effect. 
if I hear that and I'm a white person and I know Francesca worked her ass off, pardon my expression, she earned that promotion. Let's say that the manager was looking at two people of equal background, but maybe Francesca just crushed it on a project or whatever and she earned that. If I heard that and somebody was trying to attribute that simply because Francesca's a black woman, I might say, perhaps she earned it, do you know? And let's and call somebody out um, because leaning on color can go both ways. I think as a person of color, we've all been in situations where we thought that somebody was falling back on color as an excuse. And there are the time where it is an issue of race and there are times where it's not and someone's using it as an excuse. And, and that's a delicate dance and perception is reality. But as a white person, if I hear something that feels unjust, rather than to let it go and put that in the column that so-and-so was being a jerk about that, I might start calling that out. I might start addressing that behavior. If I'm in a meeting and I hear Jessica, who is a black woman of color, say something and people don't seem to be hearing her. And then James says the exact same thing 10 minutes later. If I heard Jessica say it, I might say something like, like Jessica just said 10 minutes ago, whatever it was that James just said. That way I'm amplifying her voice. I'm trying to create some visibility there uh, that may be ignored because either she's a woman or she's black. There are a variety of reasons that people are tone deaf in that way. And I'm not going to hate on anyone because we all are a product of our upbringing and our backgrounds set the table for the lens in which we view the world. And quite honestly, if I'm working in the city, but I go home to a neighborhood that's very homogenous, I'm not going to have a lot of practice on what it's like to interact with somebody who's different than me or to hear their voice in a way that I might not um, notice because I haven't had that level of interaction. So we are in a definite phase of education. I'm very encouraged that people want to have these kinds of conversations now because people have been uh, blind literally until we saw George Floyd get choked to death without any concern on social media. So let's let's just be honest, we were all very outraged by that. And that's why we're having the kind of conversations we should have been having years ago, you know? Wow, thank you so much, Jennifer. I was also thinking that we have a lot of uh, DEI executives now. Many of them don't have the experience to perform that job. Well, they got picked because of the color of their skin or because they work in HR or something like that. They, they get paid for that. I, I don't think I've met a white DEI executive, but my point is what should a DEI executive be focusing on? Especially, I don't know whether there's a school of thought on what they should all be doing. A generally accepted school of thought on what all DEI executives should be doing. Let me put um, DEI executives in two categories. You have the executive that might have grown up in the organization 
and who more than likely was a hand raiser or could have been drafted to take the role. And then you have DEI executives right now who have probably had a cursory exposure to diversity, but they're capitalizing on the opportunity that's very rich right now because there isn't a company out there that is not looking for a DEI executive. And so I caution companies to be very prudent in how you vet the right people to come in and work with your organization before you move forward. And then for people who ascend into the role, there are two tracks for success. Um, Not necessarily for success, there are two tracks to the approach of dealing with DEI. I think uh, an organization that's reacting to uh, either an incident, to anger, um, and responding because you don't want to be sued or you're about to be sued and you're looking for quick fixes to show that you are a good corporate citizen, um, but you need to do something, you need to get some education. And more than likely, you are keeping anybody who does unconscious bias training in business right now because that's the hot button. Let's just say for the record, everybody has biases and how we manage and talk about that in the workplace is a whole other conversation. Then you have DEI people who are dedicated to really looking at the entire life cycle of employees in a workspace and trying to construct a conversation, a foundation for building out not just a DEI infrastructure, but what does your entire holistic approach to creating a culture of inclusiveness look like? And I think in that category, you are poised better for success than when you are reacting and you have people screaming at you for results that you could not possibly produce well in six weeks, you know, that level of of urgency. I really appreciate that people want to talk about it. People want to get into the traffic. People want to show their teams that there's value in this diversity and that they want to move the conversation forward. But if you want people to be successful, you have to take a breath, you have to take a step back and you have to approach it like I said, holistically, you have to look at how are we recruiting people? Where are we going to find people? Are we going outside of our usual norms and what's familiar to really look at diversity? Then you look at how are job specs structured? A lot of them have color coding in there. They have a certain level of what the fit is for the role, what the expectations are. There's a social implication if there's something along business lines, you know, entertainment value in terms of people feeling comfortable coming into an organization and interacting with you from a client base. Uh, If you're dealing with marketing and communications, that level of thinking, there's a whole other spectrum that people are looking for in terms of fit on a team, which is a buzz word there so let's look for coding and how people talk about that so you have to look at how are you recruiting 
Where are you recruiting? And then when you get people into your organization, do you have a culture that sustains that level of diversity? People think, okay, I want to increase diversity by, you know, four to 6%. I want to target middle to upper management. But what have you done to cultivate a pipeline. We all know how to get entry-level people in, but have you created infrastructure to help them grow and build their career? Have you created opportunities for mentoring across the board, not only with people of color, but all your junior people in a way that sets people up for success? What does your succession planning look like? You know, um, people of color look for people who look like them to even see can I aspire to some senior level management opportunity? How are you socializing with people on your team? You know, you have some people who don't like to drink. You have some people who want other social alternatives. How are you socializing with your people in order to build relationships moving forward? This is all a part of that conversation. Do you have employee resource groups that are there? Are they tied into uh, business opportunities to move the to move the dial, to ask people, uh, or to vet marketing opportunities, for example, to make sure that you are not offending your, your client base or, or even offending your people internally in terms of what's happening there. Um, then you look at pay equity. Are people being paid fairly? Do you have gender disparities? Do you have racial disparities? Are, are, you know, are, what's your alignment there? So there's a lot to look at when you talk about building infrastructure. Is your DEI person properly placed in the company. If you have a DEI person that's reporting into your chief human resource officer, I don't necessarily feel that that's a good line of succession there. I think that person should be held accountable and reported to the CEO because you're trying to move the dial there. I think that a, a DEI person should have some impact on hiring decisions in a meaningful way in order to be able to affect change. I think that there's a level of compensation that should be tied into all executive comp along a DEI structure. And in some business platforms, that's difficult to do because of how um, revenue is generated. But as a CEO, that's part of your job to figure that out. And uh, if you can look at the business holistically that way, I think that's a good beginning. And I'm going to tell anybody who's interested in the DEI space that you have to have a lot of heart and a thick skin. Because if you're a person of color in this space, um, it's a very challenging road to walk because uh, you need to be balanced, you need to be approachable, uh, you, need, you need to be the place where executives can come and ask the difficult questions that can vet the difficult conversations because uh, some people do want that opportunity uh, to do that with somebody in a non-threatening, offensive way. Um, so I think it's a, it's, it's a challenge. And I think from a recruitment um, CEO lens, finding a, a partner that you feel comfortable with in terms of matching uh, that cadence and that direction, um, it's a value add, but it's very much in partnership with a CEO. A DEI person cannot be the sole driver alone without that leadership partnership from the CEO. So those are all very important if you want to set somebody up for success. 
Wow, I am going to put an emphasis for this episode. I'm really going to emphasize that DEI executives and companies that are trying to figure out what to do, they really need to listen to this because there's so much content that will be beneficial in their role and in various organizations across the board. I want you to please elaborate on something. What are those unspoken rules in the organizations that precludes Blacks or minorities from getting hired into a particular role or advancing into a position? And I think you mentioned cultural fit. Can you elaborate on that? So you said something that's interesting. Um, First of all, somebody is never supposed to say to a candidate, you're not a good cultural fit. From an HR, I'm wearing my HR hat now because that's a red flag that literally could lead you down a slippery slope for possible discrimination suit. So you would hear somebody say that person's not exactly a good fit. And that's probably feedback that a hiring manager would say to a recruiter, but as a candidate, I might not ever hear. And you you might just hear some feedback if you didn't get the role where, um, you know, close but no cigar type of thing. Like You were great, uh, but the manager wanted to go in a different direction with the role or something very nebulous that you could never wrap your brain around. Um, I'm going to assume that if I'm an executive and I'm going for a role, and I'm working with a recruiter, I would have done my homework in terms of looking at the organization, um, researching uh, the top executives in terms of their backgrounds and pedigree, uh, any significant articles or blogs that will give me a sense of the cultural balance before going into the organization. So A, I can determine if I think it's a good fit for me as an individual, and then B, where does the leadership team net out in terms of their background, cadence, and the way that they think? So that when I'm going in for the interview, I feel really well prepared to speak in a manner that I think will make me that cultural fit. So if I've done my homework and I get that feedback in some way about it not quite working out, then it's up to me to see if I can dig a little bit deeper, either finding out from the recruiter something more specific, which generally you won't get, or I'm left to my own assumptions. And then if I get into the organization, and I start to pick up a vibe about fitting in and connecting, that's a whole other conversation uh, to be had informally as you get to know colleagues and you try to get to know the culture of an organization through reaching out informally, either having coffee, uh, you know, going out for drinks afterwards, um, which I think is an essential part of an onboarding process. At an executive level, that onboarding should absolutely exist in terms of someone making sure you are meeting your peers and key colleagues when as part of your onboarding process 
And that should certainly happen at a senior level. At more junior levels, it might be a little bit harder to obtain that. Um, I think it's really important to observe when you come in for an interview, how are people who are passing by interacting? How do people speak to one another? What are you hearing? What's the vibe? Um, what's on the screens in the background? A lot of times people are very high tech now. Do they have CNN on the background or is it their own brand? and marketing type of information that you're seeing. That's also very telling in terms of the culture and what's going on in there. Um, and then really, I think it is about uh, process, trying to find out how do people communicate in this organization? Those times where I have first started someplace, I always try to be more of the observer and the sponge in a situation to try to find out, you know, how do people talk to one another? How do I need to present ideas? Um, when I go to meetings, when I come out, is the expectation a recap of the meeting? You know, how do you keep notes? You know, everybody's in there with a notebook do people go with a notebook or do they go with a laptop um, are people texting in a meeting versus paying attention do people show up on time um, do the meetings run long you know is there a lot of banter and chatter before you get down to the nitty-gritty of the meeting these are all a part of figuring out how you fit in when you join an organization. And then other things that may come up that impact you. If you are in a higher profile position where there's a lot of client interaction, people may be looking or asking you questions about how you manage relationships. If you go to lunch, they're going to be paying attention to how do you carry yourself at lunch? How do you order? Um, if people are having cocktails at lunch, do you partake? You know, that could be a telling sign. You know, how do you manage that? Do I order spaghetti? and risk you know ruining my shirt or do I um you know go with a safe option where I can you know cut a salad and you know eat properly you know you never know how people are measuring your fit you know if if the lunch experience goes well they're going to be seeing can you go to lunch with a client and be professional and entertain in that way because that's a big part of the business. Are you a golfer? Um, you know, I just had a conversation about that with some freshman students at my university who are starting. You know, I went to a school that was known for golf, never played golf the entire time I was there. I, when I was on the sales side of, of my business in cable, the first thing that, that happens to start off a major sales event is a golf outing, you know. So those are little social cues that if you're coming from the city and you've never been on a golf course before, you may need to think about that if you're really interested in pursuing something in business, and especially for women, because trust me, you don't want to be the beverage babe driving around in the golf cart while, you know, the guys are having a conversation because you don't play golf. So those are things you need to figure out and invest for yourself in order to fit in. And I think that's important. Absolutely. And I remembered one of my very early positions when I came to the United States. My colleague, uh, his wife, actually three of us in a similar role, I'm Black, there was one Indian and this white guy. So the white guy said, I know exactly what to do. I'm going to start playing golf with the big guys. And next year, I'm going to be managing you guys. And I was totally oblivious to this golf thing. <laughs> and sure enough, 
he started playing golf with the big guys. And I'm not talking about two, three levels up. I'm talking all the way to the top. He started playing with them, hanging out with them. They emailing him. Okay, so when are we meeting and all that? And I'm like, wait a minute. He's already talking to the big guys. And next year, he became a manager. They transferred him out of that area, but he surely did become a manager. So there are all those things that many people don't even understand that you're bringing up. There's some things you absolutely need to learn in order to be able to move up. It's really quite interesting, as you put it. I also want to do a little bit of comparison between HR and DEI. Today, I think you will agree with me that a lot of employees do not trust HR. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would agree. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how can they build that trust level or partnership with DEI executives? I think it goes back to what we uh, talked about earlier, how you structure your DEI executive for success. If that DEI executive and that uh, chief human resource officer both report into the CEO versus that DEI person reporting into the head of HR, there will be a, a, a paradigm shift in terms of the power structure. And you're putting them on equal footing. There's going to be overlap because you both are dealing with talent. But let me let me also caution the DEI person because I've been in this situation myself as head of talent interacting with my DEI person. Oftentimes, your DEI person might get wind of issues that are impacting people of color first because there is a a different relationship structure and there is the perception that HR would be punitive or actionable if I go to them and I'm not there yet. Let me just say that HR is, is, is charged with the task always of representing the company first, but I think any good HR uh, group worth their salt would have the same mission in mind to ensure that it's a good working experience on both ends, not only for the employee, but in the best interest of the company. So I'm going to come from that um, level of hope that your your HR department would be structured in that way, of course, correcting versus being punitive. Now, a lot of DEI people who don't come from an HR background and may have come through uh, company structure would not be privy to what needs to be investigated, what and how things need to be managed if you get into a situation where there could be some possible exposure for the company. We cannot always assume that the story that we've been told as a DEI person is the full measure of what the story is really about. There is always, always another side to the story, and that's where the partnership with HR is very important. And I think if you come from the approach of some balance in terms of your power structure, and yet you both have the best interests of employees as well as company in mind, then you can find a middle ground. And that would be the best case scenario. The realities are is that sometimes you have HR people who are not always representative of 
what you or where you want to go culturally and they may have a bad rap in your organization and that is a whole other uh, consideration for the CEO to take a look at and then sometimes you have wonderful partnerships and alliances where there is a great rapport and support for each other and that you kind of know when you need to hand something off to HR or how HR can help guide and counsel you as a DEI person who may not know everything that's important in a situation if something comes across your desk. So it has to be a really open relationship. There has to be a conversation and a rapport between the two, as well as with the CEO. Very well said. I'm thinking about the CEOs. What's going on with some of the CEOs you're working with? What are you hearing from them? What's their fears and how should we be alleviating those fears? I think CEOs are experiencing a very human moment in time. Um, I think for a lot of them, quite honestly, it's an oh shit moment in terms of what do I do? And I'm not sure I signed up for the full measure everything that's involved here. But I'm going to say this. If you're CEO, this comes with the territory. This is why they pay you the big bucks. And um, they're trying to, and I understand that. And part of what I'm tasked to do is to help provide um, a lens for them to develop a point of view and a vocabulary for addressing this uh within the infrastructures of their companies. Now, some CEOs have raised their hands and said, you know what, this is not my bailiwick. I am new to this conversation. I am equally ignorant to a lot of the things that are going on and I'm admitting that I I need help. I think that's a great beginning. I think to acknowledge a level of humanity is important. To acknowledge what you don't know is important. To ask The question is important, but I also think it's important to have a point of view, not only as CEO, but in positioning the company on a lot of these issues. And I quite frankly applaud a lot of the companies who decided to give Juneteenth off this year, which uh, acknowledges the end of slavery in this country. big time by giving the day off, which never happened before, right? Never, never. Very very few companies uh, even knew what that was all about. I also think that there were a lot of companies that took a stand on their websites in terms of stating Black Lives Matter. They came up with a value statement around diversity and inclusion because they not only wanted um, people to know externally about their support, but they also wanted to show that support for their employees as well. I think those that have called on making sure that their policies are in alignment with their positioning is very critically important so that you do not contradict yourself externally uh, in what your employees will say about the organization on social media. So I think that was equally important and and, um, says a lot because let's be honest, all of this started Uh, because of social media, and it's going to continue because of social media. Um, And I think the fact that CEOs are starting to embrace that from how their companies are run and realize that it's been a half-assed job 
uh, on this front for several years for a variety of reasons. Managing diversity is expensive. Having a head of DEI is expensive. These are things that are impacting your bottom line that don't often generate revenue. But let me say they don't generate revenue in the short term, but they can in the long term. Because if you can build these alliances with organizations that can help feed your pipeline, if you can raise the profile of goodwill within your community, I think from a marketing and advertising perspective, uh, oftentimes the missed opportunity is in the product loyalty that people of color tend to provide for certain products and services when they are serviced well. Uh, and I also think that word of mouth in terms of the environment that you provide that sustains all people is also going to serve you well when you are looking for talent in, an, in a competitive environment. And I think uh, none of us knows what work is going to look like post-COVID, uh, but the things that we do for the people inside our organizations now matters. And it also matters through the lens of color. So it's not only are we able to keep people working, but are we able to support people in a way that makes them feel valued inside an organization. And that's the power of a CEO stepping in and asking these kinds of questions in a meaningful way. Well said. So CEOs need to view their responsibility here beyond just the PL, the bottom line. This, mm-hmm. this needs to be factored in. And this could be a winning competitive edge for some organizations once they're able to figure it out and they become masters at it. Having that pipeline, continuous flow of the different types of employees and not just employees, I think even all their stakeholders, right? Whether it's employees or vendors or customers, or I think from a customer standpoint, most likely it's diverse, except for very few niches. But in general, whether it's your vendor, your, you know, your suppliers or your employees, that's where you're most challenged. You can pick and choose where you really want to lean. But I want to assume that any organization that is able to really maintain a really solid balance in this area will be around for quite a long time. I'm hoping that as the CEOs are listening, the DI executives are listening, they see the value of investing in this for the long run. So let me ask you a personal question. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when you saw that video with George Floyd? I was incredulous. At at first, I didn't really understand what I was looking at. And then you realize you're looking at a real person being killed in real time with a total disregard for his life as he's calling his mother. And I am never ever going to forget that. I remember I was watching CBS um, Morning News. Gail King had just said that was probably the most horrific thing that she had ever seen. And then we go immediately, we cut away to the bird watcher in Central Park and how in a, in a moment, someone used their white privilege to basically weaponize the police against a black man. And I, it, was, it, was, it was too much. 
um, that really broke me that day. I was completely overwhelmed. And I remember posting um, a story on Facebook where I recounted a story of where somebody reminded me of being black. You know, as, as a person, it doesn't matter how well educated you are, how well you live, where you live, there's always going to be some situation that comes up where a white person reminds you that you are a black person in America. And I invited friends and family to share any story similar to mine where they were somewhere where a white person reminded them they were clearly a black person in America. And I was so humbled by the stories that were shared, but I was also very sad even at the senior level of people that I knew in terms of their careers and where they were and how they had been impacted, you know, standing, waiting for a taxi and someone handing you their keys, thinking you're the valet and you're standing there with a suit on or your corporate sponsor for um, uh, an event and you show up and you're trying to figure out where, to, where's VIP parking and they show you where, you know, the help is supposed to park and you're driving, you know, the best car and, and, and all those situations. You're, you're at a retreat with your colleagues and you're going for your spa appointment and someone checking in wants to know if you're there to clean the room. You know, all those kinds of stories were endemic of that pain that we were all feeling when we saw George Floyd. And it continues. I, there's every day there is some inequity, something off balance that continues to happen. And we can't be discouraged by that. We must press on. Thank you for sharing that. If you're on a global platform and you need to speak to a predominantly white audience, what would you tell them now? I would say be brave about talking about race. Um, these are uncomfortable conversations, but these are not conversations that Black people can solve. You have to ask your question. The question is, who are Black people, Black and brown people, having a problem with? Um, now, certainly we have our own issues inside our, our communities, but when we look at the infrastructures where we work, the institutions where we try to do business, the, the homes that we try to buy... And who is predominantly overseeing these institutions, these businesses? They're white people. And so these are difficult conversations. I'm not telling you to have them in ballrooms with hundreds of people, but I think it's the casual, smaller conversations, the opportunity to really get to know people, to understand where they're coming from, the frustrations. Those are the conversations that are going to make a difference and not to shy away from them. Uh, it's, it's a big issue. It's going to take a lot of work. I'm encouraged, like I said, that we are having these conversations, but white people need to continue to sit down and have these difficult conversations. Absolutely. It takes bravery, especially when we're even looking at the different lenses. I mean, you have white privilege that you don't pick, you just enjoy it, yet you need to have this conversation and you need to be brave. What would you tell a Black audience if you're standing on a global platform? I would say 
I know you're tired. And I would say breathe and take care of yourself. I would say I understand your fear. I stand in fear as well. Uh, I worry what we tell our children. Um, but we've got to press on. We all have to uh, embrace good trouble, as Congressman Lewis said, um, because there's momentum here and we have to be willing to answer the questions. We have to continue to have the conversations on the other end with our white partners and friends and colleagues and press on. And I would say, get your rest, do what you need to do to take care of yourself, but press on. We cannot stop here. There's more work to do. Oh, what a wonderful place to end this. You've shared with us so much today, Jennifer. I'm even thinking as, as an employee, as a mother, as an individual, as an executive, as a corporation, I mean, name it all, they will benefit from this dialogue that uh, we've had today. And I just want to thank you so very much for your generous time, uh, wealth of knowledge that you've shared, uh, not holding back anything. I mean, it's, it's just amazing how you took us through this journey, how we can move from where we are to start moving towards the ideal position we want to find ourselves. It's truly an eye-opener to get your perspective on this, and I just want to thank you so much for that. I want to also give you the opportunity, if there's anything you want to share that I've not asked you. You know, it's interesting because um, I say that uh, the most important thing that we need to do is vote. There is so much energy in the atmosphere. There is such a desire for change and movement. If we do not shake down these trees and drag everybody we know to vote in November, there will be a reckoning like we've never known. We cannot have four more years of the political infrastructure we've been trying to deal with. This is not who we are as a people. I don't think this is how we want to be represented globally. Uh, I certainly feel we are better than that, that we can be better than this, and that we must embrace the moment and vote. We must, it, you, must you must vote down ballot. You must vote in the presidential election. You must, you must vote. That is the most important thing I could leave you with. Thank you. It can't be any better than that because all of us can do that at the minimum, right? Yes. At least yes. most people can do that. Absolutely. So, and we must do that, as you've said. Well, thank you so very much. Uh, I don't know how to express my gratitude. All I can say is like Oliver Twist, I may want you to come back again, if you don't mind. <laughs> I would do so gladly. Thank you for having me, Francesca, and for creating this platform for us to talk about solutions. It's very positive. Thank you. Thank you again, Jennifer. I'm sure you'll agree Ms. Randolph covered both personal and professional landscape of this discussion. She provided pointers for diversity, equity, and inclusion executives, CEOs. She reached out to not only Blacks, but all racial groups even from her personal experiences. 
I really appreciate our commitment to moving the course forward. So what are the critical points? First to non-Blacks. She said, be brave, don't shy from the tough discussion. Number two, she said, remember who Black people are having problems with. So be vulnerable and truthful. That is the only way to do it. And she said, be an ally and amplify the voice of your Black colleagues, friends, and associates. And to Black people, first, be open because allies come in different shapes and colors. So be at alert, be at an alert. Take care of yourself, she said. She also says, just like you, she worries about what to tell the children, but she suggested that you need to embrace the good trouble. This is a good trouble. And finally, she said, press on and vote, vote, vote to everyone. Thank you again, Jennifer. To all our listeners, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and encourage them to subscribe on yourblackmatters.com. Also, if you have any feedback, please email me at francesca at yourblackmatters.com. Jennifer, thank you for your contribution to the history we are making. I'm excited to be a part of it. God bless you and your family. To all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America. See you next time. Bye-bye.